Father, we praise you that you are a speaking God. Thank you for your word in a language that we can understand. We pray now that you would help us to understand more of you and of Jesus. We get to know you better and know then how to live for you in your world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how much is a human being worth? Uh, each of us is made up of a number of chemical elements that come together to form molecules and cells and things like that that make up our body. Now, if you analyse the chemical elements that make up a human body, it turns out that standing here in front of you right now is 54 kilograms of oxygen, 20 kilograms of carbon, 9 kilograms of hydrogen, 2 kilograms of nitrogen, 1 kilogram of calcium, 1 kilogram of phosphorus, 200 grams of potassium, 200 grams of sulfur, 120 grams of sodium, 120 grams of chlorine, and then in decreasing order of magnitude, there are vanishingly small traces of iron, fluorine, zinc, silicon, rubidium, and about 50 other elements, including 250 micrograms of gold, which is worth an astonishing one penny. But some of those other elements are fairly valuable, in particular potassium, is not cheap in its raw uh, form. Add it all together, though. Do you know what I'm worth and probably you worth roughly the same? £137.32. Is that what a human being is worth? Well, today, of course, we remember those who gave their lives not because they thought human life was cheap, but precisely because they understood the cost of freedom from tyranny, and they were prepared to pay a very high price for that, laying down their lives for our today they gave their tomorrow. Now, historically, the notion that human beings have equal worth and dignity and value and are worth dying for, well, that has been founded on the Christian understanding of each human being being made in the image of God. Do you know, it's a distinctively Christian thing, historically, to say that all human beings are both equal and great in value. If you go back to the Greek and Roman times, for example, it was a completely foreign and ridiculous idea to those cultures that all human beings might in some way be equal. But in a world that is increasingly determined to forget our Christian roots and live without God, worth and value seem harder and harder to find. So I wonder if you saw this week, Emma Watson played Hermione in the Harry Potter films, and she declared this week that she prefers not to think of herself as single, but as self-partnered. Now, I don't know what it's like to be a single female celebrity and be constantly questioned about your private life, and maybe she's just trying to find a new way of saying that she's contentedly single and please stop asking me about it, which would be fair enough. But speaking of being self-partnered seems to resonate very much with the way our culture generally struggles to find value in anything other than romantic relationships. Do you think that's true? A generation or two ago, the atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell put it like this. The root of the matter is a very old-fashioned and simple thing, a thing so simple that I am almost ashamed to mention it for fear of the derisive smile that will greet my words. The thing we lack and the thing I need is love. That's 
Bertrand Russell. We long for love. We long to be valued. Now, the verses that we heard read earlier from 1 John chapter 4, they tell us that we will never truly love or be loved unless we first understand that God is love. And that we love because he first loved us. Now remember, if you've been here, the church that John is writing to has experienced fake love, scam love, if you like. The love of false teachers who claim to love but in reality hate. They hate their brothers and sisters. They claim to offer a deeper, more victorious spirituality but in reality they just love the world and power and reputation and money like the rest of the world. And John has pleaded with his readers in different ways. Don't believe them. Don't go with them. Stick with the gospel that you've already heard. Stick with the good news about Jesus that you heard from the apostles. Because eternal life is only found there. And it may look outwardly less impressive and more foolish. And it may lead to ridicule rather than respect in the eyes of the world. But don't be fooled. It is the path to real life. And now, having been quite polemic in the way that he's preached to his hearers, you know, attacking the false teachers wherever he can, he now turns to say, even more positively than previously, the best way to fight fake love and not give in to the temptations of the false teachers is to understand what real love looks like. So, we're going to see that this morning. God defines love. You can see that on the... Uh, back of the notice sheets, it's got the, the headings that we're looking at <clears throat> as we go through. God defines love, first of all, verses 7 to 10. Before we can, underst- we can talk about what it means to love one another, we need to understand, verse 7, that love comes from God. Verse 8, God is love. Now, that's, that word, God, that phrase, God is love, that, that's a sort of phrase that, like many other verses, actually, in this reading that we heard this morning, has been quoted many times out of context. And it's, you know, people take it to mean all kinds of different things. Now, God is love is not the only thing that you can say about God. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, we saw God is light. And we saw that means he is goodness itself. <clears throat> and the thing is, that's not the only thing you can say about God either. But the point there and the point here is that when we say God is light or God is love, we mean God defines what goodness is. And he defines love. He defines what love looks like. In other words, there isn't some higher standard external to God that God conforms to along with the rest of us. And that's really important because it means that when it comes to love, it's not, that, it's not up to us to decide what love looks like. You know, there's a kind of logic that goes, well, God says he's love, and I know what love is. You know, love is love wherever it's found or whatever it is. So whatever human beings call love, well, God must be in favour of that because he's love after all. But actually, that's working the wrong wrong way round. It's working from our human experience back to God and demanding that he meet some other sort of universal standard that we derive from our own experience. No, this is love, he says, verse 10. He gets to define it. God is love. And then in saying that, it means that everything he does is loving. 
It's not that some days God does loving things and other days he does judgment things or he makes life difficult for his creatures kind of things. Depending on his mood, you know, is he loving today? I'm not sure. It might be like that for even the best human being to drift in and out of love a bit. But with God, no, he is love, do you see? And that means everything he does is loving. And that's important to know and believe because if we believe that God is in control and sovereign and in charge of all that happens in the world, and then we start to experience pain or suffering or hard times, well, we might easily begin to think, well, actually, that means God doesn't love me anymore. But no, God is love. And again and again in the Bible, we read, we can therefore trust God in the hard times and in the good times. We can know even in the midst of suffering and pain that he is love and everything he does is loving. Even if we can't understand in the midst of grief or pain or suffering or loss quite how that works, we can trust that he knows what is best. How do we know that? How can we really believe that about God, whatever's going on, that he is loving in all circumstances? Well, we know that from verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. For God, you know, he is love, he defines love, and that's not a theoretical thing, it's not a merely verbal thing, it's an action thing, a self-sacrificial thing. He sent his son, his only son, whom he loved. And why did he send him, verse 10, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Some translations use the word propitiation there, an atoning sacrifice. What does it mean for God to be love? It means he doesn't just sweep sin under the carpet, say, oh, let's pretend that hasn't happened. But he's both perfectly loving and perfectly just. You know, usually as human beings, we feel we have to choose one or the other. Well, well, do you punish the child when they disobey or do you let them off as a picture of grace? Do you say enough is enough when your friend hurts you yet again? Or do you keep bearing with her and give her another chance? Do you forgive the murderer and push for rehabilitation? Or do you seek justice and punishment that fits the crime? You see, we feel like we have to choose between love and justice. Now, when it comes to sin against God, there can be no doubt. Sin must be punished. Actually, how could it be otherwise? Would we really want to see the dictator and the sexual predator just let off and escape final justice? That wouldn't be fair. That wouldn't be right, would it? And yet the problem is, the line between good and evil isn't somewhere out there in the world It runs down the middle of each of us. And that means if God is going to be perfectly just, we must face justice too. But verse 10 shows us he is able to be perfectly loving in his justice and perfectly just in his love. As God the Son steps into the world as a man and he takes the justice, the judgment, the punishment deserved by sinners on his own shoulders. This is love says John. Think of the the fake love, the worldly love the believers in the church had experienced. How How did Jesus love? Was it because we were the group to be seen with? Was it because he would get things back in return? It was neither of those things. It was a sacrifice that involved death and suffering so that we might live. He gave himself. That is love. 
Now today we remember those who've given their lives in sacrifice. Their sacrifices were great and there are astonishing stories, aren't there, of those sacrifices. But those sacrifices are a mere imitation of Jesus' sacrifice. God himself giving up everything for uncountably many sinners. God defines love. And then he says, secondly, verses 11 to 16, that love must define us. Love must define us. Again, don't miss this. Which love is he talking about? Verse 11, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then down in verse 19 as well, we love because he first loved us. Again, we're not defining what this love looks like. He defines it and then he says, that same love must define you. Otherwise, we mishear what this is saying, do you see? And, and I think particularly in our culture today, if you, if you say love must define you, you think, oh, that means romantic love. But this is something even further reaching than romantic love. This is the basis for all love, including romantic love, but all love besides that. Giving yourself up for others like God gave himself up for us. And in particular, John, very much in these verses, has in mind our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we might think, isn't that a bit cliquey? A bit sort of inward focused? Shouldn't we be thinking about loving the world? And we've heard, quoted already in this service, and we heard it on Wednesday at the vision meeting as well. John 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So do you see the point? The reason that we love one another and the reason that he focuses on this and says it's so important how you treat each other is so that the world can see God's love in action. That's what he means by completing God's love in verse 12. See, do you see God's love isn't just something you read about in the Bible. You just sort of open it and think, oh, here's God's love here. No, it's something that we live out now. It's meant to be attractive It's meant to make people stop and go, hang on a minute, these Christians, they are different. They're different from the rest of the world and they're they're also different from one another because, look, hang on a minute, here's a head teacher serving coffee to someone who works as a cleaner. Or here's a judge asking someone who works as a waiter how he can pray for him this week. Here's a CEO taking time out of her week to check in with one of her small group members who's been struggling with depression. What's going on here? These things never happen, people might think. How how do these people even know each other, the world asks. They've got nothing in common. What would make them behave like this? Well, it's because they themselves have experienced the love of God and now they're loving others as they have been loved and that in turn will be a testimony to the world. Do you see? This is how, how the love of God works. It's a bit like discovering that you've got a special cupboard in your house and when you open this cupboard door, M&Ms come pouring out of this cupboard. Hundreds, thousands of gloriously chocolatey and sweet M&Ms. They pour all over the floor and overflow everywhere. Every time you open this cupboard, you can't stop them from coming out. You will never be short of M&Ms. It's a miracle cupboard. And when you have a miracle M&M cupboard in your house, it's not hard to share M&Ms, is it? 
Now, you know, of course, everything in moderation, but if you come to me when I'm eating one of those standard, non-miraculous little bags of M&Ms, and you ask me, please can I have some of your M&Ms, I'm going to struggle. <laughs> now, I might give one or two. Well, yeah, I know I'm a vicar and all that, and you're supposed to share, but these bags are really small, aren't they? And, and basically, it's a zero-sum game. Because either your M&M joy meter goes up and mine goes down because I get fewer, or the other way around, but not both. But a miracle M&M cupboard out of which flows an abundant, never-ending supply of M&Ms, well, that would be a game-changer. Of course you can have some M&Ms. You can have as many as you like. Please come and, and, and this cupboard is overflowing. It keeps on giving. We'll, we'll never run out. Bring all your friends. There's enough M&Ms here for everyone. Now, as far as I know, such a cupboard doesn't exist. Sorry about that. But when it comes to love, it often feels like the same zero-sum game. Do you see? Well, I can love you. I can sort of give something up in order to love you. But that will cost me, and that is painful, and I'm, you know, I'm not sure I want to. Especially if you are not being particularly lovely or lovable today. But you see, the love of God is like the miracle M&M cupboard. You see, it's an overflowing, keeping on giving, never running out, bring all your friends kind of love. Loving others is never a zero-sum game, says John, because you are loved by God. You are loved by God, and therefore you are shower-drenched in that love, and you can share that with others. You're showered in because of Jesus' death. You know you have a love that you don't deserve, but that lasts forever. Love that never depends on us and our own efforts. Love that is undying and constant and unconditional. It doesn't dry up. That is the kind of love we have been loved with. You just have to believe and trust and rely on Jesus, the saviour of the world, the son of God, as he sums it up, even in the middle of these verses, verses 14 to 16. Believe and trust and rely on him. Rely on the love that God has for you. And then you'll be able to love others just the same. You can live in love, as he puts it in verse 16. Well, let's then think, what will it mean to love as those who have been loved by God? It must mean to give of ourselves without thought to the cost. Because that's what he's done for us. So when do we find it costly? to love. Well, when we, th- when we think of a cost, we can quickly think of money. And John had particular warning in chapter 3 about seeing a brother or sister in need and doing nothing about it despite having the resources. But actually, I wonder if the real cost for many of us in, you know, in North London 2019 isn't actually to do with money. It might be more to do with time. You know, the great badge of honour in our culture today is even in Christian circles, is to be busy. You know, how, how are you doing? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm busy but encouraged, you know, pressing on. It's tiring, but I'm, I'm okay. And so what, the, the result of that is that we struggle to commit, we struggle to give time, because we're just terrified we might not have enough. And we might especially struggle to give time to things that the world might think is a waste of time 
a waste of precious resource. You know, well, meeting up with another Christian to look at the Bible or pray, you're going to give a whole hour of your week to do that? What a fool. You're going to meet with a younger Christian to give your time to their spiritual growth and encouragement? Oh, come on, there's more important things than that, surely, people might say. But you know, when somebody who is genuinely busy makes a conscious decision to give time to somebody like that or to, to others, it can have a massive effect. I can think of individuals, when I was a, a young Christian, who in the space of maybe just half an hour said some life-changing things that I can still even remember standing here today. And, and part of the reason I've not forgotten what they said and how they said it was because it came in the context of them deliberately giving up precious time. Why would they do that? Why would they want to spend time with me? Because they think this is important. And it's not just with individuals. Again, in, in the context of busy lives, we shouldn't underestimate the value of using our time just to sort of show up whether that's you know, to church on a Sunday or to my small group, to the monthly prayer meeting, it's a massive encouragement just to be there with brothers and sisters and you know we're missed when we're not. Now it may well be a massive sacrifice to do that for whatever reason. And that's why we start then to measure whether, you know, am I really useful in this? I haven't got a job to do. I need to have a job. If I'm on the rotor, I'll be there. But if I'm just sort of there, well, I, you know, if there's other things more important, maybe I'll do that. Now, this, this matters. Yes, it's a sacrifice. Yes, it involves giving something up. But that is what God has done for us. And when we use our time like that, we love as he loved us. Now, of course, this is London. We are genuinely busy. But that is the point, isn't it? And it's been said before, on the whole, we do make time for the things we think are important. Now, don't, don't mishear this. Don't let, let this become a weapon to sort of beat ourselves up with. And when this feels challenging, if it feels too challenging, just keep going back to God's love for us. He defines love. Only when we've understood that does he then say that love must define us. If we're struggling, go back to him. Think, how have you loved me? How have you loved us? And then let that shower of love ooze out into the rest of the world around you and other brothers and sisters. And then finally and briefly, uh, the third thing you see, love brings confidence on the day of judgment. Verses 17 to 21, love brings confidence on the day of judgment. What is the result of loving like this? Verse 17, look at that. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Well, those two verses are actually about the same thing. They're about the final day when God judges the world. Will we face that day with confidence or with fear? Well, John says, living out the love that we've received from God will bring 
confidence. It won't bring fear because at the end of verse 17, in this world we are like him. In other words, we have confidence about the day of judgment when we start living the life of the new heavens and the new earth right here, right now. Now, let's just think about what this means. Does this mean, after everything that he said so far, that actually there is, after all, a kind of test? And I will only get into heaven, I will only get through that day of judgment if I score highly enough on the love test. Because if that's the way it is, I might start to feel rather less confident and rather more fearful, because however much I might be committed to loving my brothers and sisters, I know that often I fail to do that. But it's not like that, you see. It's like this. You know, it, uh, occasionally I get to go abroad to a new country, and when I do that, I love to try and learn some phrases that I'm going to be able to use in that country. You know, I want to learn something about the language of the country that I'm going to. Now, why do I do that before I go abroad? Is it because when I get to the airport in that country... They're going to give me a language test at passport control. You know, I'm terribly sorry, sir, but you were unable to order a coffee in Hungarian, and with regret, we will now be putting you on the next flight home. Is that how it is? See, that's, that's not how it works, and it's not why I feebly try to learn those phrases. I do it because when I get there, I don't want to feel like a total outsider. I want to be able to greet people. I want to be able to sort of interact with them, even at a sort of quite a superficial level. And it's even more like that with love, do you see? We start living God's love now because that is how things will be in eternity. Not because we're going to be sort of, you know, final test, have you done enough? But just simply, this is how things are going to be forever. So start practicing now. We sometimes say, if you don't like church, you'll hate eternity. With a slight tongue-in-cheek, but I think that's basically true, isn't it? It's going to be eternity, not just me and God by ourselves, but... Me, you know, us all together with billions of Christian brothers and sisters. But if we don't like loving other brothers and sisters now, well, actually, eternity is going to be a big problem for us. So get practicing now. Do you see the point? And then that will be a sign, that will be evidence, not that, you know, we deserve our place. This isn't what gets us into the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus does through his death. But it's a sign that you indeed are going there. We won't love one another perfectly this side of eternity. We will mess things up. We will say and do things which hurt each other. And part of, living, part of loving one another is to forgive one another all the time living out the same love that God has shown to us. When we do that, we will find that value, that worth that we thought about at the beginning. We'll find that, that value and worth that we long for. We will find it in being loved by God and then in loving others in the same way. Do you see? So today we, we also remember those who loved as God has loved us in significant ways. But let's do that now for each other by living out this love starting now and keeping going all the way into eternity let's have a moment to reflect on that and then i'll lead us in prayer